Thank you, Colin. Hello, everybody. Um, so now we're in for a very special hour and a half, and I invite you to listen with fresh ears and forget everything you've known and really try and look at this with, with fresh ears and fresh eyes. Um, we're lucky enough to have Stephanie Kelton join us this afternoon, and the way we're going to conduct this session is that Stephanie will give um, an address, and then I'll invite Sonal Desai, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income, to come up and have a debate with Stephanie before handing it over to you, to, you all to, um, to make some comments. Stephanie Kelton is the Professor of Public Policy and Economics at Stony Brook University. She's a key economic advisor to Bernie Sanders and has become the face of MMT. So please welcome Stephanie. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. It is uh, very nice to be with you here today. I, I got very lucky in that um, the invitation to speak with you today more or less coincided with an invitation to speak at the, uh, an event organized by the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, which is something I did just, uh, what, three days ago uh, alongside Larry Summers, doing roughly the same sort of presentation that I'm going to do for you here today uh, for a faculty that was primarily the finance uh, department at UMass Amherst, but with some investors and others sort of sprinkled around. So, um, I'm going to jump right in because I have just about 45 minutes to give you really a broad brush stroke. If you have heard of modern monetary theory or you've heard somebody talk about MMT, which is sort of the shorthand way to refer to it, it's really a body of scholarship that has been developed over the last two and a half decades, um, beginning with about a half a dozen scholars, most of them in the United States, but one important economist in Australia uh, by the name of Bill Mitchell. And so this is really a collective endeavor and a body of work that's been, as I said, built up over two and a half decades or so, and I have 45 minutes to distill the key insights for you. So it's not a lot, and I'm not going to cover everything, okay? But I'm going to do my best to give you a pretty good introduction to MMT. So before I do that, very quickly, I'm going to put this in the context of uh, the policy debates that are taking place today. Everyone in this room is aware, I don't need to go through the numbers with you, that um, global growth in most of the developed world is slow, and in many cases, slowing. So we're looking at um, growth rates in the US that are expected to slow to something like 1.8%. Japan continues to be um, just the real poster child for stagnation. Um, Europe, just everything sort of chugging along in sort of positive territory, but not looking terribly strong, right? So all of these conversations have begun about what to do when the next recession comes. How will policymakers respond? both here and around the world, will they have the ammunition to fight the next recession? I've had my own debates over the last couple of years with economists like Paul Krugman and Larry Summers, who in some cases I think um, have made what I would characterize as pretty irresponsible remarks with respect to the Fed and Congress's capacity to respond effectively to the next downturn. Um, you know, I heard Larry Summers say after the Republicans passed the tax cuts at the end of 2017 that it would mean that the U.S. was going to be living on a shoestring 
for decades to come, that it would be incapable of responding to the next downturn with expansionary fiscal policy, and that we would be essentially incapable of defending ourselves militarily in the event of uh, a strike. You can look it up. This is something he actually um, argued. So I take a very different perspective, and I believe that central banks and policymakers and economists around the world are beginning to gravitate to the views that MMT has held for the last 25 years or so. So it is never a question of whether the next downturn will come, whether we will have a recession. It's always a question of when, right? It is a battle between headwinds and tailwinds. And as long as the tailwinds are just a bit stronger than the headwinds that we're facing, we're going to continue to see positive economic growth. At some point, the headwinds will become stronger than the tailwinds, will slow down, and eventually we'll see an economic contraction. That's just the reality of capitalist market economies, okay? So we don't know what will trigger it. We don't know exactly when it will come, but we know that eventually the economy will slow and we will slide into a recession. Now, to extend the current recovery, there are uh, people like the President uh, of the United States who are saying, I would like an insurance policy of some kind. I would like to know that the Fed is doing everything in its power to stave off a slowdown. Give me a 100 basis point cut right now. This central bank is screwing up big time. Other central banks are coming closer to getting it right. They're more aggressively easing. Give me what they have. Right, Powell, you're a disaster. So really leaning on the central bank to carry the load, right? to do what is necessary. That is not my view. That has never been my view. That is not how MMT economists think. For us, not just now, but always, over the course of the last 30 years in particular, we believe that policymakers have leaned too heavily on central banks to steer the economic ship. In the US, we have uh, a dual mandate. You must know this, that Congress has given the Federal Reserve the entire responsibility. You take the steering wheel. You drive, right? You have a dual mandate. Your job is to give us a good economy, maximum sustainable growth and stable inflation. Right? Go get them, tiger. And the burden falls on the central bank and in other uh, countries as well. Too much dependence on central banks who've done everything in their power beyond the conventional toolkit into negative interest rate policy, the QE rounds, and the rest of it, getting more and more creative to try to do anything in their power to keep the, the system afloat, right? to keep the recovery going. So, I'm not going to make you listen to the whole thing. I might play just a snippet of it, but obviously this is Mario Draghi. He was uh, giving some remarks just about a week ago in which they asked him, you know, what do you think policymakers need to be thinking about in terms of economic policy going forward? And here's what he said. Is this the best way to allocate liquidity if you have in mind objectives like climate change, or reducing inequality in a more forceful, more effective way? Well, probably not. Probably there are different ways to do it. And in fact, some of the new ideas about monetary policy, like the MMT, like a recent. All right, so you get the point. He's invoking MMT in his response to a question about where we're headed, where are we going? And he's saying, look, there are new ideas out there. It's not going to be enough to go back to the old 
uh, hat of tricks and to repeat the same sort of things we did last time, we're going to need more ambitious policy. So this brings back the dreaded F word, right? If monetary policy is not enough, what he's saying is we're going to have to have some help in terms of the other policy lever. We're going to need fiscal policy to play a role in the next downturn. And this is not unique to him. This is not even unique to MMT, although we have held this position, I think, longer and stronger than any other macroeconomic approach. This is the president of the San Francisco Fed saying now almost a decade ago, right, in the midst of battling the Great Recession, look, if we could come up with better ways to design fiscal policy, it would take the pressure off of us, the central banks, to do all of these unconventional sorts of things that we've been doing. But what we can't seem to do is get sufficient help from our fiscal partners, right, from Congress, from parliaments around the world. So this is really where the conversation uh, about MMT begins, because as I said, for us, it has always been fiscal. Monetary policy is a blunt instrument. It isn't even clear that central banks understand how the monetary transmission mechanism works, that is, lowering interest rates to ultimately expecting higher spending and lower inflation. Central banks around the world now are, are saying, look, we don't actually understand where inflation comes from. We don't actually have a good model of inflation. And we don't always understand how monetary policy is transmitted. So that's a pretty big indictment of the single policy lever that we've been depending on for the last three decades. So MMT asks us to change the way we think, okay? It's like going from the belief that um, the Earth is at the center of the universe and the sun revolves around the Earth to recognizing, oh, wait a minute, it works the other way. The sun is at the center and we've been, our thinking has been badly oriented, okay? So MMT comes in and asks us to reset that thinking. And I'm gonna walk you through 10, I think, ways that we do that. So this starts for me about 20, holy moly, 22 years ago or so, when I first met uh, a man named Warren Mosler. Is anyone in the room familiar with the name Warren Mosler? Nobody? So Warren runs a hedge fund, and he is a very successful investor. I met him the first time in, I guess, 1996 or seven. Uh, he came out of Bankers Trust in the 70s, as so many did, and he went on to become a very successful trader, okay? And Warren is this really creative thinker. I've never met anybody quite like him. He, he has the quickest mind, and he thinks in innovative and interesting ways. So I meet Warren, and he starts talking to me about government finance and the US monetary system in a way that, for me, he's trying to tell me that the sun is at the center and that I have the earth at the center. And it's got me completely discombobulated. And I can't wrap my head around what he's saying. So he introduces me to this little story. Okay, And I'm going to tell you what he said to me. He said, I have these two kids. Let me see if this will click. Uh-oh. Oh, wait a minute. I've got these two kids. And what I told my kids, they're eight and uh, 10 and 12, 10 and 12 years old. Warren's living in West Palm Beach at the time. He's got homes all over the world. He's got these two kids. And he calls them in one day. And he says, listen, I would like you guys to start helping out around here. 
a little bit, right? You got bedrooms that are a disaster. You don't lift a finger around the house. I'd like you to, if you see dishes in the sink, put them in the dishwasher, right? If you see that the grass is getting too long, ask, hey, dad, can I mow the lawn? If you see that the car, you know, has got a bunch of sea salt and sand on it, say, dad, I could wash the car for you. He said, if you'll pick, lend a hand around here, I'm going to pay you some of my business cards. You know, I'll give you three cards every time you tidy up your room. I'll give you five if you unload the dishwasher and put the dirty dishes in. I'll give you seven if you wash the car. And we got this big piece of property. So if you cut the grass and trim, I'll give you 20 cards. So Warren lays all of these, this out for the kids. And a couple of weeks go by. And he looks in the bedroom. And the clothes are piled knee high. Grass is way high. Dishes are overflowing the sink. Car's filthy. Nothing's getting done. He calls the kids back. What happened? I told you. I'm going to give you, right? I promised you. I would reward you if you'd pitch in around here. What happened? What do you think they said? What do you think they said? Dad, what the hell do I want with your business cards? Why would I give up time with my friends and all the other stuff I could be doing to wash cars to get your business cards? They're totally worthless to me. So this is when Warren had his epiphany. And he said, OK, new plan. Sit down. So he tells the kids, look, you don't have to lift a finger. Nothing. I don't expect anything from you. All I want, actually, at the end of each month is 30 of my cards back. That's all I want. You give me the 30 cards back at the end of the month, get in, you can go out with your friends, you can go to the mall, you can have your cell phone and all that stuff. You don't give me back the 30 cards at the end of the month, and you lose some of these privileges. Okay? Oh, the kids, what do you think they did? They ran around, they started washing the car, cutting the grass, tidying up their rooms. All of a sudden, Warren imbued this otherwise intrinsically worthless cardboard calling card. He gave it value. It was worth nothing to them before, but after Warren imposed what was effectively a tax on his kids, he gave this thing value. Suddenly, they needed it, and they were willing to provision him to work to provide for Warren, for the estate, right? The state, the estate, in order to get the cards that they needed to settle their obligation to Warren. So they go around. They do all of these things. Warren gets a tidy house, clean car, nicely manicured yard. And at the end of each month, he takes these back. So here's the question for you. Why does he collect them back? He doesn't need them. They're, he issues them, right? They come from him. He can always create more. Why does he take them back? To make sure that they don't have them to hand back to him next month, that they have to earn them again, that they have to provide the work again next month in order to get the cards. If he just left them in their hands, the value would diminish, and the kids wouldn't do the work, right? So this is the purpose of collecting them back. It illustrates that, and it also illustrates that Warren can't collect the cards from his kids until he first spends them into existence. He couldn't start this whole thing by saying, give me 30 cards. The kids didn't have the cards. They had to first work and produce in order to get the cards. Warren had to spend the cards first and tax them back later. So with this little story, which is obviously a narrative designed to illustrate something important about the nature of the monetary system we have today, Warren started to change my thinking. 
I was trained at Cambridge University. I had a very conventional um, training in economics uh, through the first part of my graduate training. And so for me, all of this came as quite a shock. I, I never had a faculty member at Cambridge walk in and suggest anything like this. When we talked about the government's budget, the budget constraint was presented as the government raises taxes in order to have money in order to be able to finance expenditures. And what Warren was saying is, that's backwards. You have to flip that around. Okay, and he's illustrating that with this little story. So MMT accepts the fundamental principle, which is that the federal government, in our case the US, in your case most of you, the Australian government, is the issuer of the currency. Okay, our US dollar comes from the US government, and the currency quite literally cannot come from anywhere else. I could try to create it, but it's called counterfeiting, and I go end up in an orange jumpsuit if I get caught doing it, right? It's illegal. The federal government has given unto itself the exclusive right to issue the US dollar. In Australia, your government is the issuer, the Australian dollar, it can't come from anywhere else. So we have this thinking, this narrative that grips our political discourse, which is wrapped around a completely different vision, right? That Uncle Sam is like, in our case, we say Uncle Sam. Do you say Uncle Sam? You don't say Uncle Sam. What do you use as your cartoon character? 20 countries. 20 countries, well, there we go. So you know, in the US, it's Uncle Sam. And we say Uncle Sam is just like a household. The gov federal government is just like a household, subject to the same constraints has to be able to finance itself by coming up with money in advance in order to be able to spend, is subject to the same sorts of constraints, can go bankrupt, can run out of money, on and on. You know the story, right? MMT says, hold on, there's a difference. There's an important difference. The federal government is the issuer of the currency, and the rest of us are merely users of the currency. So the state of Kansas, right? Puerto Rico, Detroit, Currency users, private businesses, users of currency, households, individuals, currency users, the federal government, the issuer of the currency. And it turns out the distinction is a really important one, changes everything. The issuer of the currency can't go broke. Now, I know what you're thinking, who invited her? But I'm saying this is not MMT, this is not Kelton, this is not Mosler. This is well understood. This is the St. Louis Federal Reserve, right? This is St. Louis Fed. Read the first sentence. As the sole manufacturer of dollars whose debt is denominated in dollars, the US government can never become insolvent. That is, unable to pay its bills. It's not dependent on credit markets to remain operational. It has the only capacity to issue the US dollar and risk-free assets dollar denominated. So look. The part I highlighted, sole manufacturer. When we describe someone or, or some entity as the sole manufacturer of something, it's another way of saying what? Monopolist. The US government has the monopoly over the issuance, the creation of the US dollar. Therefore, as the St. Louis Fed says, you can't run out. You're the monopoly issuer. You can't go broke. You can't have bills coming due, denominated in your own currency, that you can't afford to pay. You can't become insolvent. You can't turn into Greece, in other words. Money is no object, literally or figuratively. And so here are the same sort of things being said by three 
heads of central banks, Alan Greenspan, saying, look, we have a fiat money system. We are not tethered. The currency is not tethered to gold or any other asset like it was back in the day. This is the post-Bretton Woods era. It's a fiat money system. As a consequence, the issuer of the currency can create these claims, his words, without limit. Draghi asked, can the ECB ever run out of money? His response, his words, no, we cannot run out of money. Um, ben Bernanke, is that taxpayer money that the government is spending to help rescue the US economy after the financial crisis? It's not taxpayer money, he says. We simply use the computer at the New York Fed to mark up the size of someone's account. It is digital, it is spreadsheet, it is fiat. It is the reality. Some people may not like it. It may make people uncomfortable to have this idea that there is an infinite capacity to create the currency, but there is. So we have to talk about what that means, right? MMT is not a free lunch. MMT does not say, because there's an infinite ability to create currency, we should create currency in an infinite capacity, right? That's not the lesson of the story. Okay, so what are the implications? We think of the federal government as the scorekeeper for the dollar. And so the way Bernanke described it is, in order to spend, the federal government instructs its bank, in our case the Fed, to make the appropriate credit to some seller's bank account. If the US government contracts with Caterpillar to do infrastructure investment, if we do big uh, research grants, as was mentioned in one of the previous um, panels, then we credit the appropriate um, educational institutions accounts so that they can fund research. If we do right, defense, then we credit Lockheed Martin's account. Whatever it is, the Fed's job is to type the numbers into the computer and carry out the payments on behalf of the federal government. The numbers appear in somebody's account. That's how it works today. It means the government can never run out of money. It means the government doesn't have to tax or borrow in order to fund itself means the federal government is not dependent, as the Fed said, on credit markets, can set its own interest rate, can decide the rate at which it will, the yield on which it will um, service its obligations, right? Set its own interest rate. So it doesn't give the government unlimited policy space. It gives a government that issues its own currency expanded policy space. What we're saying is that there is space available to us that we don't currently take advantage of, right? We don't run our economies at their full potential. And part of the reason we don't is because of this, these myths and misunderstandings and aversion to budget deficits that causes us to restrict the use of the fiscal policy lever to improve overall economic performance. We're afraid to use all of the space because we don't understand how it all works. This is the lesson. Okay, I'm hitting the wrong button. Okay, so what is the limit? I'm saying we have expanded policy space, but we don't have infinite policy space. So what MMT asks us to do is to recognize that the limits are not financial. The limits are in the real economy. They're real resource constraints. Every economy has its own internal speed limit. You can only operate your economy so fast. You can only go so intensively with labor, with capital, with the technology you have. You can produce up to a certain limit, and that's it. Trying to push the economy beyond its capacity constraint will lead to inflation, right? So the whole trick 
is to recognize how much fiscal space is out there, take full advantage of the space that's available to you, and don't push too far. Okay, that's, the, that's the name of the game. So the relevant constraint is inflation. It's not solvency. We have to recognize the limits are real. We need to respect them. We need to be able to identify them. It's real resources that matter. And so let me pause and I'll tell you, I'll contextualize this with a story. If this was 2008, think back to 2008, right? Not a good time. So the wheels are coming off the global economy. And in the US case, we're losing 800,000 jobs a month at the height of the Great Recession, okay? 2008, there is oodles of capacity available to absorb new spending. If the US government had said at that time, we wanna do a trillion dollars of infrastructure investment right now, I don't know very many economists who would have said, how are you gonna pay for it? Who, how are you gonna raise a trillion in taxes? There was pretty decent understanding at 2008 moment that you could safely spend, we did a $787 billion so-called stimulus package, but it was not all spending and definitely not all infrastructure. But the point is, there was not uh, $787 billion in new revenue, new taxes to pay for it all. They just ran deficits, right? And everyone understood that there was enough slack in the economy to absorb more spending without the need to put up taxes. Yes, 2008, people understood that. Move the clock forward to 2019. You look at the US economy today and you say, would it be safe today to spend a trillion dollars upgrading, improving America's infrastructure without a tax increase? Now there's a debate over how much slack remains in the economy, whether it's still safe to spend up to a trillion dollars or whether some portion of that spending would need to be offset either by cutting spending in some other part of the budget or raising taxes to mitigate the inflation risk. So it's a different debate as the economy moves from lots of slack to less slack, okay? But this is, the, this is where we want the debate focused. Okay, so in the MMT perspective, as in Warren's little story, the government is not collecting dollars from us, it's not taxing us in order to be able to spend. It doesn't tax for revenue. The taxes are for subtraction. Government spending puts money into someone's pocket and taxes take money out of someone's pocket. It doesn't make the government richer when it collects taxes. It doesn't mean it has more money to spend later. It just means that they have removed some dollars from some other part of the economy. It's not better position. Now I'm able to spend in the future. No, you're the currency issuer. You can always spend in the future. The purpose of collecting the tax is not to fund yourself. It's to reduce the amount of income available to someone else to spend, right? So taxes are for subtraction. Why would you want to subtract from anybody? Because you think that if you don't subtract some spending power that your own spending will lead to inflation. So the taxes aren't offset, right? They're a release valve. All of this, everything I've said so far since I climbed up here was understood in the 1940s, every bit of it. None of this was new to any economist who was running around the 1940s, including 
The guy on the left, Beardsley Rummel, who was the chair of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, head of the New York Fed, wrote a piece in 1946, and the piece was called Taxes for Revenue Are Obsolete. Obsolete. We do not collect taxes for the purpose of raising revenue. Head of the New York Fed, 1946. On the other side, Mariner Eccles, the guy for whom the Federal Reserve Building is named. It's the Eccles Building, right? He was the head of the Federal Reserve under FDR. Eccles was writing, look, the, the reason that we're putting taxes up during World War II and into the 50s after the war is to mitigate inflation. It was all about inflation. It was never about raising revenue for the federal government. So they all knew it, and there's tons and tons of written work out there that we've just forgotten, right? We've changed the narrative. So when I think of taxes, I don't think of it as something the government gets. I think of it as something they subtract away from the rest of us, and it's just down the drain. It disappears. It, it, it's just gone. Okay, it's different for the pr provinces. It's different for state and local governments. Taxes do mean revenue, and they do depend on revenue in order to fund their budgets and so forth, but not for the currency issuer. Okay, so here's the way I try to illustrate this. We're going to have the federal government run a deficit. It's so simple, and yet there's so much confusion about what deficit spending actually means. So here's, I'll play the role of the government. I'll be the bad guy, and I'm going to run a budget deficit. So this is me spending 10 bundles of dollars into the U.S. economy. You guys be the U.S. economy. So I've spent 10 bundles of dollars, well, into the rest of the economy. Now I'm going to tax some of those away. All right, you ready? So I'm going to collect a tax. I'm going to take four of those bundles away. Now, I have run a deficit. I spent 10, I collected four in taxes. So the Congressional Budget Office is gonna produce a report that says the US government ran a deficit. They're gonna write a minus six down in the report. You say, oh, irresponsible. Why are you running budget deficits? This is terrible. And forgetting that my deficit made that $6 deposit in the rest of the economy. My deficit is your surplus. That's where those six came from. If I had put 10 in and taxed 10 out, you'd have nothing. Okay, that surplus is there only by the grace of my generosity in running a fiscal deficit. It's where they came from. Okay, so what we forget is that the federal government's deficit is the non-government surplus to the penny, always and everywhere. Who understands this? I'll tell you who. Jan Hatzius, the chief economist at Goldman Sachs. He understands this. He uses the MMT framework. He has referred to this chart, and there's a, another version which brings in the foreign sector. He's referred to this as, these are his words, the most important chart in the world. Most important chart in the world, his words. Okay, what does this chart show? On the bottom, in the red, you have the government's financial balance. On the top, in the black, the private sector's financial balance. Notice how they move in opposite directions. That is, as the government deficit increases, which is to say becomes a bigger negative number, the private sector's balance becomes a bigger positive number. So while everybody was running around with their hair on fire as government deficits exploded in the wake of the financial crisis and through the Great Recession, and the panic set in around these large budget deficits, I was out there saying, look up, look up, look up because those big government deficits were producing 
those enormous financial surpluses that allowed the private sector to repair its balance sheets, to delever. Those were enormously important. And in countries where budget deficits weren't allowed to grow to provide that replacement, right, that financial replacement, the recovery took a lot longer, right? Much less robust, longer uh, period of stagnation. Okay, so moving on beyond deficits, people say, well, okay, but deficits require borrowing. And so deficits add to the national debt over time. And isn't that a disaster? And isn't that unsustainable? The MMT position is no, not for a currency issuing government. If you're Argentina and you're borrowing in US dollars, if you are Greece and you've given up the drachma and begun to borrow in a currency that you no longer issue called the euro, if you are Venezuela with a dollar denominated debt, there are countries, if you're Russia before the peg blew up, if you're fixed exchange rate, then yes, these can become serious problems. If you are the United States, uh, Australia, the UK, Japan, if your debt is denominated in your currency and only your currency, as the St. Louis Fed says, there can never become a solvency issue. Not gonna have bills coming due that you can't afford to pay. How MMT thinks about the national debt is this. It's nothing more than the dollars that the government spent into the economy and didn't tax back that are currently being saved in the form of US treasuries. I'll say it again. That is what the national debt is. If I'm the government and I spend $100 into the US economy and I tax 90 away, I have left a $10 deposit, right? My deficit is 10, I put $10 in the US economy. Now I come along and I say, I have these US treasuries, right, 10. Who wants them? Don't you know, and it also has to do with the way the primary dealer market works, but somebody out there is clamoring to swap their $10 in non-interest-bearing currency for my 10 interest-bearing U.S. Treasuries. So I make a swap. So the national debt is just the historical record of all of the times that the U.S. government spent more into the economy than it taxed away, and then it recycled those dollars into U.S. Treasuries. Nothing more than that. Nothing more than that. So I look at stuff like, it's, it's not about financing, you can always control the interest rate, we could talk about that. I look at these things, these stupid clocks that they run, right, trying to scare people, terrorize the population, your share and all that nonsense. I put up these giant numbers and, and corrupt the political discourse. And so I look at it and I say, why don't we just call it what it is? So watch me, I'm gonna change the label at the top. It's just the dollar savings clock. That's all this thing is telling you. So this would be a lot easier to swallow if we didn't have the word debt attached to it. But because we call the outstanding stock of treasuries the national debt, everybody gets very anxious about it, you know, because it's, it's the word debt, I think. So I would like us to get to the point where you can open up the Wall Street Journal, see the headline, national debt and descent an all-time high or deficits or trillion dollars or whatever, and just be able to take a nice deep breath and know that everything is okay, right? Sort of what I'm aiming for. Okay, so you hear these debates often um, by critics of MMT who don't bother to read the literature and don't really understand what the project is about. So they will say things like this. The government has three ways to pay the bills. It can tax you, it can borrow your money, or it can print money. MMT says print money. Now, I've been standing up here a very long time, and not once have I used the words print money, because none of us do. 
You won't find a single MMT economist anywhere using language like that. There's only one way to pay. There isn't a menu of options. You can choose whether or not to increase taxes as you uh, fund some new program. You can choose to issue treasuries as part of the fiscal operations, but there's only one way to pay, and that is the central bank credits the account of the appropriate seller. That's it. There's only one way to pay. Everything else is kind of smoke and mirrors or misunderstanding. So this is what I'm suggesting to you. We got to fix this thinking because we end up with really bad public policy as a result of the broken thinking. And I say this as the former chief economist on the United States Senate Budget Committee, where I served in 2015 and part of 2016. The thinking that grips Washington, D.C. all revolves around this broken model. And the broken model is this one. It says the government has to tax and borrow. That's where it gets money. So if you want to fund a new program, if you want to spend on infrastructure or anything else, and you are an elected official in Congress, the House or the Senate, you write a bill and you say, I want to do a trillion dollars of infrastructure investment. And somebody says, how are you going to pay for it? What they're trying to get is an answer to this question. How much are taxes going to go up? And if taxes don't go up by the full trillion, then how much are you adding to the deficit? How much are you going to borrow? This is how they think that it works. They're saying, you know, taxes and borrowing come first. That's where the government gets the money. After it has the money, it spends. MMT says, let's have the Copernican moment. Let's flip it around. Because this is leading us down the wrong path. That's why every politician is confronted with this question, how are you going to pay for it? They all want to know who's going to pick up the tab. Who's going to pick up the tab? Right? You're going to put it on the deficit? You're going to raise taxes on the middle class? Who's going to pay for it? Who's going to pay for it? So we want to fix this, because this is what it ends up doing. Wall Street will pay for it. The billionaire class will pay for it. Mexico will pay for it. You see, this is how the question gets answered, because we're asking the wrong question. MMT says, let's look at how it actually works. And I'll repeat this again, because I'm saying this from the inside the sausage factory. I was the chief economist for the Democrats on the US Senate Budget Committee. That is where the budget gets written. Okay, how it really works is this. The House and the Senate write a budget. If they agree and the budget moves forward, it goes for a signature from the president. And then there's an appropriations process, which is to say Congress says we're appropriating funding for R&D for infrastructure, for healthcare, for this. They say how much they want to spend. And then guess what happens? It gets spent. So right now, the US federal budget is about four and a half trillion. If anyone in this room doubts for a second that Congress could write a six trillion budget tomorrow, pass it, and spend six trillion dollars, I have news for you, you're wrong. There is nothing to prevent Congress from writing and passing a $6 trillion budget, and every penny of that would be spent. Not because they went out and collected up $6 trillion in advance, but because Congress has the power of the purse. And the congressional authorization is where the money comes from. If they authorize it, that's what will be spent. The spending happens first. 
The spending happens first. The taxes reclaim a portion, right? They subtract away some of the dollars that are spent, and the borrowing is about transforming non-interest-bearing dollars into interest-bearing dollars. The, the bonds are there to support interest rates in positive territory. That's the purpose of offering the bonds, right? It's to prevent the overnight interest rate from collapsing to zero. So I'm going to move more quickly. The goal is to balance the economy, not to balance the budget. This is what MMT is trying to do, is to get us to focus on the proper outcome. If the government can, I'm going to skip that. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say this very quickly. I've already said this. The point is, if you want to spend $6 trillion instead of $4.5 trillion, the question is, can the economy handle another trillion and a half in spending, or do we need to offset all or some of that extra trillion and a half? If we don't offset it and we get inflation, then we spent too much. But if the economy can handle another trillion and a half in spending without inflationary problem, then what's the, what's the purpose of raising the tax, right? It's not about the budget outcome. It's about the macroeconomic outcomes. It's about whether you can increase spending without creating inflation. Taxes are there to, to mitigate the inflation, and the borrowing is there to support interest rates. So my point, our point, is that if the government spends more than it collects in any given period of time, that's not evidence of fiscal malfeasance. It's, it's not fiscally irresponsible. If you can run a budget deficit but produce a balanced economy, then I want us to define the picture on the left as a balanced budget, because that's the one that generates broadly balanced conditions in the macroeconomy. So you could say, Today in the US, inflation is running near 2%. Unemployment is 3.5%. Maybe people want to say that's full employment and stable inflation. But we have a trillion dollar deficit. So what? So what? If we have good economic outcomes, who cares what number you have to turn the dial to to generate those economic outcomes? And we have a different way of thinking about trade. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We obviously have a president who thinks that we're getting killed by the rest of the world. I think he looks at everything through the lens of a businessman, where cash flows, income statements are all that matters. And so when he sees a trade deficit, he sees dollars going to the rest of the world. And that, to him, is evidence that somebody is killing us, eating our lunch. Um, MMT looks at this differently, because we look at everything in real resource terms. So we say imports are a real benefit and exports are a real cost. This is a position that was, oh, well, I'll play this because it's so funny. And I told Prime Minister Abe, great guy, I said, listen, we have a massive deficit with Japan. They send us thousands and thousands, millions of cars. We send them wheat, wheat. That's not a good deal. They send us millions and millions of cars. We send them wheat. It's not a good deal. I'm here to suggest it's a pretty awesome deal. If you get cars in exchange for a weed that grows back in a wheat, it's, it's not, you're not getting killed, OK? So this is, a, this is something, look, Milton Friedman understood this in the 70s. My goodness, how far we've strayed. Milton Friedman, what we send abroad, we can't eat. We can't wear, we can't use for our houses. The goods and services we send abroad aren't available to us. 
The gain from foreign trade is what we import. It's favorable when you can get more by sending out less. That's how Friedman defined real, the real terms of trade, and winning, winning. So if you look not at the dollars going back and forth, but at the stuff going back and forth, we're taking a lot more of their stuff than they're taking from us. Okay, so it's another way in which MMT thinks differently about one of these major policy issues. This is the last thing I'm gonna do, and I think it's important, so even though it's a little bit over, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run this and then I'm gonna stop. So having personal retirement accounts is, a, is another way of making a, a future retiree benefits more secure for their retirement, and also, do you believe that personal retirement accounts as a component to a system of solvency does help improve solvency because when you have a personal retirement account policy, it, it's accompanied with a benefit offset. With that feature in place, do you believe that personal retirement accounts can help us achieve solvency for the system and make those future retiree benefits more secure? Well, I, I wouldn't say that the uh, pay-as-you-go benefits are insecure in the sense that uh, <clears throat> there's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. The question is, how do you set up a system which assures that the real assets are created which those benefits are employed to purchase? So it's not a question of security. It's a question of the structure of a financial system which assures that the real resources are created for retirement as distinct from the cash. The cash itself is nice to have, but uh, it's got to be in the context of the real resources being created at the time those benefits are paid so that you can purchase real resources with the benefits, which of course are cash. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just love that clip. It, that clip is almost the entirety of MMT. Almost the entirety of MMT. He gets everything exactly correct, okay? He's asked by Congressman Paul Ryan, don't you think, don't you agree with me? Right, he's looking for a simple answer, just say yes. So don't you agree with me that now is the time to begin to move toward a system of personal retirement accounts? Because as we all know, Social Security is blowing up, it's unsustainable, we can't afford to keep our promises to future retirees, their dependents, and the disabled. It's going broke. Don't you agree? And Alan Greenspan leans into the microphone and says, no, right? He says, I reject the premise. He says, I wouldn't say there's anything unsustainable with the system the way it's set up today. There's his words, nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to someone. Exact quote. So what Greenspan has done is to take off the table the affordability argument. That's not it. It isn't about the cash. Right? Currency issuer. We can always mail the checks to all future retirees, their dependents, the disabled, on time, in full, as promised, in perpetuity. That ain't the issue. Then he goes on to make the really important point, and it is the debate that we should all be having today. He says, the question is, again, quote, how do you set up a system which assures that the real assets are created, which those benefits are employed to purchase? What does he mean? He means this. Demographics are changing. They have been. 
right, since FDR gave us Social Security in 1935. The number of people paying in has been shrinking since then, essentially, right? A little baby boom, and now the boomers are moving out of the workforce and into retirement, 10,000 a day, 10,000 a day. So they're leaving behind a smaller and smaller population of people who are producing this stuff, but when people retire, they don't stop consuming, they just stop helping us make this stuff. So Greenspan's entire point is about demographics and inflation. And he's saying, look, how do we know, how do you set up a system which assures the real assets are created? How do we know that 10, 20, 30 years from now, the US economy is going to be productive enough so that when those checks hit the mailbox, or actually the bank account, the digital bank accounts of all the recipients, that they can turn around and do what? Buy stuff in an economy that is producing enough that their added spending doesn't create so much competition for a shrinking pool of real resources that it leads to an inflation problem. That's the whole point. That's, it. That's Alan Greenspan's entire point. It's he, you heard him say, it's about the real resources. It ain't about the money. You can't get a better response and a better way of trying to direct the policy discourse, to drag politicians in the right direction. It's about our real resources. If we want to make public colleges and universities tuition free, if we want to cancel student loan debt, if we want Medicare for all, if we want infrastructure, if we want tax cuts, if we want whatever it is, it's about the economy's real resource capacity to handle those tax cuts, to deal with that new spending on infrastructure. Do we have the contractors, the engineers, the architects, the steel, the machines? Do we have the nurses and the doctors? Do we have professors and labs and classrooms available? That's what matters. Those are our real resources, right? Everything else is um, missing the point. I'm going to skip the last couple because it doesn't matter. MMT, the point is MMT is a lens. MMT doesn't tell you how to run your economic policy. MMT gives you a better set of lenses through which to evaluate policy proposals and um, to understand that the limits are not on the financial side, that they're in the real resource side. So with that, I will stop. Are there questions now or? Okay, I will sit down. All right.